0: Mark, How are we doing? <laughs> hey, it is great to be with you. My name is John McGee. Uh, 20 years ago, week seven of this church, my wife and I walked in here uh, for the first time. We, uh, we had one child who wasn't able to walk, so we walked in here with a little car carrier. And uh, here we are 20 years later. We've got two in college, two at home. This is the only church they've ever known. And it has, been, man, it's just been a blessing uh, to be here. And so I came on staff in 2002 and started the marriage ministry here at Watermark. And so God brought us some really gifted uh, people and we started Merge Foundation Groups and Reengage, if you've uh, heard of those before and had a really fun run. The last three years, uh, what I've been up to is helping other churches, basically leveraging any of our learnings, any of our resources uh, to help other churches make disciples in their community, and so uh, doing some really fun things we 've got the church leaders conference uh, coming up we 've got Awaken uh, coming up uh, we 've got a church podcast a church leaders podcast we 've got books uh, that are coming out articles last fall really fun. We made our entire staff available so that churches could just kind of call in and book an appointment with someone else on our staff if we could uh, serve them in any way um, and then we 're exporting our ministries, uh, merge foundation groups, reengage, regen. Uh, and reengage, And I'll t- just to highlight that one for a second. It's really fun. Uh, re-engage, which is one of our marriage ministries um, here, uh, is in 365 churches now uh, around the country. And so, yeah. Really, really amazing. I mean, you should be encouraged if you invest here uh, about the way your investment is being multiplied. And so I've been in these churches, and the same things we see here are happening there, people coming to Christ uh, people walking in with uh, divorce papers in hand, and now they're leading in the marriage ministry. Uh, it's really, really fun. And so uh, I, hope, I hope that encourages you to keep praying that uh, we would be faithful here first. We want to be uh, the church before we go and help others uh, do the same, but uh, man, pray for that. It's really, really exciting. So having been around here for 20 years, like anywhere, if you've been somewhere for a long time, you, you realize you've got a lingo and a language in your, little, uh, in your little subgroup, right? And we Watermark and Christians in general are pretty funny. Uh, we've got words uh, that sometimes we say and just sound odd from the outside. Uh, fellowship, uh, doing life together. Uh, we're, we, we unpack things, which has nothing to do with moving, right? Um, we, we talk about loving on each other, which sounds a little creepy, uh, if we're honest. All that means, all that means, if you're new, just encourage, that's all it is. We're just encouraging uh, each other, you know, or investing our treasure <laughs> as if we had, you know, sacks of gold that we, uh, that we drag around um, these days. But one of the, one of the words I've, I've noticed an uptick in it uh, is the word gospel. And it, what's interesting is you can actually go out to Google and, and map word usage across books and articles and things like that. And, and the gospel is, uh, you know, good news, the gospel's making a comeback, uh, here, and it's, it's on an uptick in usage. We use it a lot here, but I wonder if we even know sometimes what it means. And so if you've got your Bible today, uh, open up to 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to start with what is the gospel? And Paul tells us as he's talking to the, uh, the Corinthians there in, in 15. So we'll start in verse 1. Uh, Paul says, "Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand." And so, Paul, this is really this is really important. Paul had preached the gospel, which um, means good news. Paul had preached the good news to the church at Corinth before they were even uh, Christians. So, as they were exploring the faith, Paul preached the gospel. And now, he, now that these guys are Christians, he wants to come back and preach the gospel to them. It's both for non-believers and Believers. And verse two, uh, Paul says, By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Verse three, for what i received and passed on to you is of first importance. And Paul's saying, The most important thing, the central thing for the Christian faith is the gospel. And let's be crystal clear about that. You say, great Paul, what is the gospel? He goes on and explains it from here, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so what is the gospel? It's this, that the Christ, who was the perfect God-man, second member of the Trinity, came to earth, died for our sins. The penalty of sin is death and Christ took it upon himself rather than you pay it He paid it, and he went into the tomb. Three days later, Christ was raised, which signifies, one, that he is God, two, that he conquered sin and death, and three, that God accepted this payment by Christ on our behalf. And that is the gospel. And so if you've never heard that before, that's really good news you don't have to pay for your sins. Christ has done that for you if you accept it. So if you're a non-believer, the gospel is great news. If you are a believer, the gospel is great news. And Paul was so eager to preach it, not just to non-believers, but to believers in, in, I'm sorry, in, in Romans 1, he said, I'm eager to share the gospel with you, preach the gospel again. He's like, guys, you need to hear this because not only for our salvation, but also our lives, it has so many implications. And so today I wanna talk about the gospel. I also wanna talk about marriage. John, why would you wanna talk about the gospel and marriage, I'll tell you. After working with couples here for almost almost 20 years, I saw this over and over and over again. A couple would go to a marriage conference and they would enjoy their marriage more. They would both say, we like being married more than we did before this conference. And what would happen is it would revert back kind of over time. And then they would say, well, great. So now we're going to read a book and we'll read a book. We'll learn some new, uh, new what or some new how techniques and we will enjoy our marriage better. And they, and they would. And then they would revert back and then they would take a retreat or read another book or go to another conference learning a new what, a new how and they would always revert back. But I've seen this over and over again. Couples who are locked down on the why, they leverage those but they don't, they don't have to depend on any book, any conference. And I want to talk about uh, this why, and I want, to see, uh, I want to see marriage through the gospel lens. And so um, my hope is that later today you're talking about this with the person you came with, and one of you says, that was a great gospel message, and one of you says, no, that was a great marriage message, gospel message, and you, and you can get in a fight, and you'll, I'll tell you how to resolve it uh, as part of this today, <laughs> but that would make me really happy if, uh, if that was a raging debate, because we're going to talk about both. Now, I know some of us uh, in here are married and it's gonna, the applications will be very, very apparent. Uh, some of us aren't married and, uh, and want to be. And I think this will be an encouragement to you. Some of you are, aren't married and have no desire to be, which can be a, God, uh, a God-given gift, uh, Scripture says. Uh, some of you uh, have been married and aren't. But all of us are in relationships and all of us need to be reminded of the gospel. And I think all of us should walk out of these doors and in a few minutes just kind of having our breath taken away about the way God loves us and the way God responds to us. And so today we're gonna talk about three things that the gospel teaches us about marriage and how the gospel should be both our model and our motivation in relationships. And the first one of these things that that the gospel teaches us about marriage is that it teaches us to initiate. The gospel teaches us to initiate, and I think about verses like um, Romans 5, 8, and many of you know this verse, that right? while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came to us. He didn't wait for us to get to him. And, and all man-made religions are all the same. You work your way up to God. And once you, once you reach uh, kind of his standard, then he will respond or then he will reciprocate, right? Which makes sense because that's how we think as Christians. We're really, or as, as humans, uh, we're really good at responding or reciprocating we're pretty lousy at initiating or going first. And we, we need a reason. Uh, we need a reason to do that. We need a model in the gospel. What Christ did in the gospel is our model. So uh, Pam and I have been married almost 25 years, 25 years uh, this summer. And the last three, we would both say, uh, probably has been some of our, our hardest times as a couple. And uh, we love each other. We're, like, uh, we're, we're looking forward to, uh, to 25, but they've just been hard. Um, so our oldest uh, went off to college a couple years ago, you know, which is always hard uh, on mama. And, uh, and Pam also just had some health stuff we couldn't figure out and some relationships that were, uh, that were tough. And uh, my normally peppy, uh, happy, joyful, make the lights burn brighter wife um, was kind of sad. And so she kind of got through that period and at the same time, <laughs> Uh, I blew out my back and I herniated my disc. And man, it just sidelined me. And for about nine months, I was just laying around the house, lethargic, you know, and kind of grumpy. And my wife had to be thinking, what a catch this guy is, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, by God's grace, I think both of us, our best moments there, we didn't have a lot to give each other, but the other one, whoever was in the, um, you know, was in the position to do so would initiate. And I, I mean, I can literally remember, I didn't have this message in mind a couple years ago, but I can remember my wife going back to bed uh, earlier uh, than she would have kind of normally. And I'm in, the, I'm in the living room and going, well, she hasn't like given me much today. Like, I don't feel better. I'm not happier. I don't have energy because of what she's done to me. And I, remember, I remembered Romans 5.8. And I said, you know, I just thought to myself, if God was here, he, he uh, has always initiated with me. For me to love my wife the way Christ loved the church is to initiate with her. And I just go back and say, hey, do you want to talk? Is there anything I can do for you? Anything um, that you want to pray about? On our best days. And I didn't have that thought in and of myself. I didn't have the motivation in and of myself. It was in those moments a gospel uh, response. And I would, just, I would just commend that um, to you. And so some of you are going, okay, let me get this straight. So God has initiated with us, irrespective, ir- uh, regardless of what we've done. And we're supposed to do that to others, right? So are you saying that if they're in a bad mood rather than, than wait until they snap out of it, I should be kind? That even if they pr- haven't prepared or proposed anything fun to do in a while, that, that I should? Or that if there's a chore that needs to be done rather than wait to see if they would do it, that I should? Are you saying if there's been a void of physical affection that I should initiate, or if we haven't prayed together as a couple that I should initiate? Are you saying that in my community group, I should reach out even if others aren't, and I'm beginning to get frustrated? Are you saying that if there's conflict that needs to be addressed, that, that I should initiate by being kind and saying, I think this is something we should talk about. Um, whenever you're ready, I would love to own my part first. Are you saying that like, I should initiate a friend our friendship with a person at the office who seems sad, mad, anxious, never says hi to me, or that even though my spouse has completely forgot that it was Valentine's again this year, that next year, rather than make them feel bad, I could initiate something fun. Is that what you're saying? Friends, I think that is exactly what God is saying to us. The gospel gives us a model of initiation, and it also helps us with the motivation to do so. Now, uh, back to the physical initiation. Uh, I've watched couples just kind of lock down and not know how to move towards each other. If that's been something difficult, I'm going to give you a quick win you can put on the scoreboard today, okay? Uh, lots of great research about the power of a six second kiss. And so when you kiss for six, sec- six seconds, uh, oxytocin levels go up, the feel good the feel-good stuff, and cortisol, the stress hormones go down, and you feel a sense of bondedness. Six seconds, that's all it takes. Okay, um, and so I would encourage you, if you're like stuck physically, for one of you to initiate that. I mean, if it goes more than six seconds, congratulations. Uh, <laughs> anything after that, even, I mean, great. Don't send me an email. Don't want to know. Uh, yeah, and, and to be clear, that's for married couples, not students. Okay, if you're uh, if you're here, but God initiates with us. And we're to do the same with our spouses and in an all relationships. So it teaches us to initiate. It teaches us to forgive. And if you've been married for any length of time, you, you found out pretty quickly you didn't date each other. You dated each other's PR departments, right? And you're like, oh, shoot. Uh, this was a bit of a bait and switch. And uh, these things keep happening and I have to continue to forgive them for these, these things. Like, how, how many times do I have to do that? Right? And we've all wondered that. Well, it turns out that is an age-old question. How many times? Peter asked it in Matthew 18. If you've got your Bibles, uh, we can go there. Matthew 18, 21. So Peter comes to Jesus and he asks, he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you not seven, but 77 times. So now what we might not understand is that Peter's kind of showboating here probably. Uh, so in Jewish culture, you're responsible to forgive three times. And after that, it was on them, All right, So the disciples have been hanging out with Jesus. They know that he likes to level up uh, commandments and things. And so they're kind of going, hey, let's impress him. Double it, add one. He'll love that. Jesus, seven times. What do you think? And he says, no, guys. Not, it's, there's no limit to, he's not, and Jesus is not answering a math with a math answer. He's, he's saying there's no limit to the number of times that we're to forgive. And so Jesus answers the, the how many question because that's, that's what Peter asked. But then he, he goes on as, as, if, as if he's trying to say, you know what, Peter, you asked the wrong question. I answered that, but let me help you out here. Let me answer the why question because I think that's really gonna help you here is if you understand why you forgive. That's going to help you in your relationships. That's going to help Christians that come after you for centuries to come. And so verse 23, Jesus begins to tell this story. It's a parable, which is a story with a point. And he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began a settlement, a man owed him 10,000 bags of gold or 10,000 talents in some translations was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay the master, ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay a debt. And so that number, 10,000 talents, it's, it's kind of hyperbole. If you wanted to run the math, it would be like $6 billion. But it's, it's really like the biggest number that would have kind of existed then. It's, it's the way we would say um, that, that that guy is a bajillionaire, right? It, it's, just, it's, it's a made-up, just ridiculous number. And this guy owes a bajillion dollars to the king. And the king sees, sees him in the ledger and goes, we got to get this guy in here. And he calls him and uh, he says, hey... You're gonna pay. pay for this. You need to pay me back. you rung up a debt. And to think about that in an agrarian society where you were just trying to scrape along the next day, you owe me a bajillion dollars. And so we are gonna uh, put you in prison. We're gonna sell off your wife. We're gonna sell off your kids. You have just now gotten a death sentence. In verse 26, the servant fell to his knees before him and he said, be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything, which he couldn't. And the servant's master, check this out. Here's the gospel right here. The Servant's master took pity on him, canceled his debt, and let him go. And in one fail swoop, one declaration, he said, your bajillion dollar debt goes to zero right now. Took out his kingly quill and just zeroed it out. Can you imagine what that would have been like to see that, to be, be a part of the, the king's court or to even receive that yourself? I don't know what that was like for him, but in my mind, I've got him uh, walking right out and just getting an awesome bagel, right? Because I think that's what you would have done in that time to celebrate. You get a bagel and, and the sun uh, is shining. This guy went from a death sentence to zeroed out. No payment plan, no terms, no reduced settlement, just zeroed out. Twenty eight. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins, 100 denarii, I think think a third of a year's wages. And he grabbed him again to choke him, and he said, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. This fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. And he says, remember this phrase, you've heard it before, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. So this guy's been, been forgiven a bajillion dollars. He goes out and he sees one of his, his, one of his peers that owes him about a, a third of a year's wages. And he begins to choke him and say, pay back what you owe. Pay back what you owe. And his fellow servant, his peer says, man, have, have mercy on me. I'll, I'll pay you back. Just, just, just please be patient. The exact same words that the servant said to uh, the king. In verse 30, this is who we are. But he refused. And instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. They were furious. They could not believe it. And they went back and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant and he said, you wicked servant. I canceled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. The king called back in the debt that he had so freely forgiven because this servant had been forgiven. Everything all all of a sudden wasn't um, reciprocating, wasn't passing on the same forgiveness. The gospel is that we get off scot-free. There are no payment plans. There's no penalty box. We owe our very lives. We owe a death sentence and Christ has forgiven us everything. And yet, it's very, very clear who we are in this story. We're the unmerciful servant, because we go out with our spouses, with our friends, with our kids and say, you will repay me. I will make you pay. You owe me something. Um, Not too long ago, Pam and I were in our bedroom and we were talking and man, I just fired off some mean comment. Um, and I saw these little tears, you know, just coming down my wife's uh, face. She wasn't angry. She was just little tears. And I just thought, oh my goodness. Pam's not only my wife, she's God's daughter. And here I am just being a jerk. And so in real time, hey babe, I am so sorry. Uncalled for, no excuse. Will you please forgive me? She said, Yeah. I, I forgive you. And we went to bed that night and it was you know, just kind of quiet and I, I woke up before her the next day and I just, I remember feeling so terrible. I was like, dude, how did you, why would you do that? And I'm, and I'm in the, the bathroom and I'm brushing my teeth and, and Pam walks in kind of uh, behind and I, and I catch her and I'm just like, babe, I, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Will you, uh, will you forgive me? And she was walking and she just kind of stopped uh, right behind me. She's 5'5". Five, five, and uh, so she's right behind me and I can't, I can't see her uh, behind me. And so she reaches out with her little 5'5 five, five arms, like, you know, little, little T-Rex arms and, uh, <laughs> and puts them around I me and she just me she a big hug and uh, I still can't see her. And then her head just pops out. She goes, hey. And I can see her through the, the mirror. She said, hey, I said I forgive you. We're good. Next. And she just kind of went bouncing around to her next, next little thing there. And I just thought, oh, man, that feels good. That feels good. And my wife knows uh, how deeply she has been forgiven. And so she's not asking for a check from me uh, anytime that I fail her. And she knows that that unforgiveness is like drinking poison expecting the other person to die. And she wasn't going to drink it that day. Some of us are, are drinking deeply today, hoping the other person experiences the pain that we're putting on ourselves. And Pam and I were talking that like we can't ever remember looking back at seasons of unforgiveness either with each other or with other people and going, man, that was smart. That was a really good strategy for our joy. I'm so glad we held on uh, and we didn't forgive. That, that turned out really well for us. Said no one ever, okay? And we understand how deeply we've been forgiven. We just want to freely uh, give it here. Now, I, I wish I didn't have to insert this, but I just do so that... Uh, just to serve our body well. What I'm not talking about forgiving is, uh, or being okay with or making light of, is any type of abuse, okay? And so if you're in a a situation, God forbid, that um, there's abuse going on, I would say get out, let your community know, call the police, but don't you ever let someone use a passage like Matthew 18 and say, you have to forgive me and condone what I'm doing, okay? That's never been okay uh, with God and it will never be okay uh, at this church. But we still can forgive, but we may not be uh, reconciled, and we may not be whole um, immediately. Okay, so I I bet you're tracking and saying, okay, I I get that. So you're saying, God is the the king. I owe a debt. I've been forgiven everything, and I'm supposed to extend that to my spouse, and you're just going to have some questions. Like, John, are you saying that that I should forgive my spouse for their insensitive comments just like you did to Pam for the times they haven't kept their word, the times they've looked at porn, misspent our money, or given their best energy at work instead of at home? That I should forgive the the person in our community group that that just seems to come after me every time we're together and harp on my smallest little flaws. Should I forgive the people that tease me mercilessly when I grew up? How about the business partner that cooked our books or the boss that's been unfair? Are are you saying that I should forgive my parents even though they hurt me deeply as a child? Friends, I think that is exactly what God is saying. The gospel is that you've been forgiven everything. A proper response from that model, uh, the proper response with the motivation is to extend that to our spouse, to our friends, to our coworker, anything less Is completely incongruent for us as Christians. Gospel teaches us to initiate. It teaches us to uh, forgive. It also teaches us to keep our commitments. And if you read your Bible cover to cover, you understand that God is a a commitment, better said, covenant-keeping God. He starts with Abraham, who was nobody special. And he says, Abraham, I make a covenant with you and your kids and everyone who comes after you. And then he picks David out, who was just a, a shepherd boy, nothing special. And he says, David, I make a, a promise, an irrevocable uh, covenant to you. And it will, it will um, not be just to you. It will also be to everyone who comes after you. Someone from your li- line will always sit on the throne, fulfilled ultimately in Christ. So then when we get to, um, we get to the New Testament in Luke twenty-two twenty, 20, where Jesus is there with his disciples Uh, Having the Last Supper, they're celebrating the Passover. Jesus grabs the cup and he makes a new covenant. He holds the cup up and um, he says, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, which will be poured out for you here uh, very, very shortly. Jesus is saying, I'm going to make a new covenant. A new irrevocable promise. This this covenant is amazing. You're gonna get a new heart. You're gonna get a new spirit. You're gonna get um, the ability to obey God. And rather than the spirit living somehow in the temple, the Holy Spirit is now gonna live in you. This is an amazing covenant that I'm about to cut with you. It's gonna be unconditional. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not by works so that we can somehow boast. God's gonna give us this covenant as a free gift. And it's going to be irrevocable, and he, he's going to keep us. John 10, 28, Jesus is talking about himself as a shepherd, and he says, I give eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you are in Christ, he's got you. He's got you. And you can't get away. He's going to keep his promise to you. And so when we take our wedding vows, this isn't a pragmatic move for Tax benefits or making child raising easier—we are mirroring the covenant that God has made with us, and these these are these are holy uh, commitments that we make. We're making an irrevocable promise. We say, "Till death do us part." And Matthew 19:6 says that it um, that it is God who joins us together. We think we choose our spouse, and we do. But something happens in that moment where God joins us together as we make a covenant with each other for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health. We have no idea how it's gonna go. But it doesn't matter. We're to keep our commitment just as God has kept his commitment to us regardless of what we do or how that shakes out. Well, there's two kinds of commitment I wanna talk about just for a second. There is The first one is called uh, constraints. And that's the things that just keep us in uh, the relationship, keep us in uh, the promise. And so uh, we've used this metaphor with couples uh, before around here. Um, Being married is kind of like being in a room uh, with lots of doors potentially that would lead out. There's the door of uh, kind of giving yourself to your hobbies, giving yourself to your work, uh, looking at porn, having an emotional affair, just thinking about uh, being married to someone else or walking out the door and having an affair or leaving the marriage. And as long as any of those doors are open, we're always gonna wonder what it would be like to be outside and we begin to kind of give some of our energies and, and best efforts uh, over there. And guys, the best, the best way to keep any of that from happen, happening is just to walk around to each door, lock it, lock it, lock it, lock it, lock it, get to that last one, lock it from the inside, chunk the key so you can never find him and lock it. Which leaves you and your spouse in the room. And you can look at each other and say, I, I don't know the how and I don't know the what forward, but I know the why. I'm locked down on the why. We're gonna covenant with each other. We're gonna keep our commitments the way God has kept it with us. And I will bet you as we do that, as we try to honor uh, the Lord and follow his example, we're gonna figure out the what. We're gonna figure out the how. And I've seen it over and over and over again. (laughs) Some of you single uh, friends in here are like, dude, this is serious. Um, I think I'll stay single, right? Um, I get it. I do want to talk to you for a second. Um, There's kind of two, those of you that are single and want to be married, they kind of shake out in two groups. The first one is uh, someone, uh, they're just getting tired. Uh, They've seen their friends get married. They've seen their friends get pregnant, and they're hanging on going, I think I might just lower my standards. That's right? just natural. That's just the way, the, way, that's the way we think. And I would just plead with you as someone who's seen others uh, lower their standards and seen the, uh, the carnage that that can take. And, God, and I've, we've also got beautiful stories here in this church of people that lowered their standards and somehow it worked out. I just wouldn't recommend it as a strategy, okay? <laughs> if, you're the, if you go, that's me, and I'm married, stay married. We'll work with you. Lock the doors, Okay. But friends, do not lower your standards. Lengthen your patience. Don't lower your standards. Lengthen your patience. Wait for God. Honor the Lord, uh, as He's doing whatever it is that He's doing. Right. And some of us, I will tell you, you're on the other side, and I'm watching this one tick up. It's um, I just kind of like doing my own thing, right? Uh, there's that one, or uh, this one is like feels like it's spiking now with um with all kinds of social media. I'm looking for the person. I've got this perfect uh, spouse or mate in my mind that I'm looking for. And you sit with a gal and, and uh, I'll say, well, tell me, like, tell me what you're looking for. And she's like, oh, I'm looking for a, kind of a titan of industries, sold one or two companies uh, already. And uh, he's got a ministry that kind of puts Billy Graham to shame and uh, uh, great hair, great hair and abs, abs. He's got, he's got abs. And the guys, the, guys generally, the guy's list is way more ridiculous uh, than that always, right? And he's like, oh, uh, looking for the uh, retired supermodel, uh, gourmet cook. Uh, she started a couple orphanages in Haiti. Uh, you know, she loves to hunt, loves to fish and loves to watch college football, right? <laughs> My answer every time to those guys is, dude, if that woman existed, she would not marry you. Right? <laughs> and and hear, hear me come back and say, like, I, I'm not talking about lowering your standards. I'm not. I'm not. But I think some of the things that we're looking for in a spouse are pretty crazy. And I, and I think two of the biggies is someone that loves Jesus more than they love you, and that's someone you can cherish. Like, could I cherish and commit to this person for the, for the rest of my life? I think that's what we're that's what we're after. And some of us, you know, we've just got work to do to get ready. And I would just encourage you to do, do that work. Some of us need, and and I'm not trying to be funny, but if we don't have jobs, get a job, start paying down our debts, uh, do work on ourselves. If there's, you know, hurts, habits, hangups, like take, take steps towards that. One of my favorite weddings I ever did was a couple and we walked and as we got close to the altar, um, it became apparent that he had had a pretty significant pornography struggle. And so it was, it was his idea, uh, not mine, although I fully supported it. He said, you know what, I'm going to wait until I can get a handle on this. And so we called all the, uh, all the close relatives and said, hey, we're going to postpone uh, the wedding. And he went to regen and uh, had this really, really long period of sobriety and I got to do that wedding and it was just so fun. Everybody in the first few rows knew exactly what was going on. The people in the back probably, probably didn't. And I just, with integrity, I could say, this is a great idea. I'm so for this marriage. This man has proven to be honorable and God honoring. And he wants to fear God and obey everything that's written in scripture. Like my money is on these guys right here because of this guy. And some of us, those are some of the steps we need to, uh, to take to get, to get ready okay um and uh, again I'm, i'm not this isn't cheap shots it's not not being funny but guys um like the woman that god has for you is probably not um playing xbox online right now that's probably not how you're going to to meet her and she's not on tinder she's not delete it if you have it or anything like that she's not there if you're asking me odds are she's here and she's humbly serving somewhere and she's dressed modestly. And I would look for her here and I would look for that woman who fears the Lord and that you can cherish, not someone who's putting themselves out there. Okay. Part of holding up marriage, high, honoring it, as we're supposed to as a body, is encouraging, I think, our, our, our unmarried friends about the beauty and wonder of marriage. Man, I love being married. I highly recommend it. But don't lower your standards. But don't look for something ridiculous that doesn't exist out there. And become the kind of person that it would be a good idea to get married. Okay, so there's the constraints. There's the constraints. These are the promises we make. We, we, we lock all the doors. That's part of commitment. Another one is just the, the fun part. It's the investment in our marriages. It's the things that we do to, to, bring, to bring life. And some of our, our marriages are pretty dead. And it's because we've not been investing in them, which is, which is what you do when you see yourself in the future with this person for the rest of your life, you begin to invest in it. Several years ago, we were in our front yard looking at our uh, flower garden out front, and it was uh, a disaster, would be a way uh, to say it, right? It was a blight in the neighborhood. Um, and we're looking out there, and I got the kids together, and I said, hey, guys, we're gonna win Yard of the Month, uh, you know, sometime soon, and we all laughed because we looked and there was like, there was no way that that was going to happen. Uh, but, but that summer we got out there and we just pulled weeds. We pulled bushes that were all mangled together. We had to get saws out literally and cut some of the roots that were all mangled uh, together. We busted the sprinkler system and had to put that uh, back together. And we put little bushes in. The kids made fun of me because I bought the little bushes. I was like, guys, they'll grow. These are three times as much. Let's buy the little bushes. And we bought the little bushes and we put flowers in there. And the next summer, it, re- like, it really was amazing. Uh, we had all these, these flowers that were popping and people were stopping um, in front of our house. they are like, wow, what a turnaround. Like your, your garden looks uh, amazing. And, and I was thinking we were in striking distance, but the, the end of the story so far is that we got a fungus in our flower beds and we, we're tracking down. Uh, now we're gonna make a comeback, but uh, we're, not, <laughs> we're not in the running this year, I can, uh, I can assure you. But marriages are a lot like that flower garden. They're a perfect reflection a perfect reflection of the amount of effort we put into them. And some of us don't like our gardens, candidly, and we're mad, but it would be, it would just be crazy for me to go out with a cup of coffee in the morning and just like yell at my garden for being dead or not looking well. I mean, we all, we all know how this happens, right? And we all know what needs to happen from here. It's the same thing in our marriage. So I just, I asked Pam yesterday, hey, what are the things that, that, you know, that when you think about investments that you appreciate, she goes, it's not, a lot of times it's not the big stuff, uh, John. It's, it's the walks where we just talk and uh, we, we go, we walk over to the store and get uh, whatever it is that, that we need. And it's the fun little dates, not the extravagant ones, but just the simple ones or something. Sometimes when we learn something new, we, we uh, learn to sling pottery or um, cook something. She's like, that's really, really fun to me. And and the big stuff too, I mean, you know, the, big, the big trips or whatever it is. That, all that's really fun and it, and it makes me like our marriage more and it makes me look to uh, the future. I mean, one of our goals on our 20th wedding anniversary is we were thinking about uh, kind of the next 10 years is that we wanted to be best friends when our kids left. And so we've told our kids, hey, we love you. Uh, we are going to miss you, but we've got really big plans when you leave. <laughs> For the first time in a long time, we're gonna have money and time We've got stuff to do. And, uh, and we're, we're really, really excited about that. And so as we think about commitment, some of you are like, John, that's just, just hard. It's hard to commit. It's hard to invest. I, I know. I know it is. I think about Psalm 15. In, in verse 1, um, God said, who, who is it that can come into the temple or to, uh, to the sanctuary? And, and, and verse 4, this is great. God says the one who can come into the sanctuary is the one who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Even when it hurts. That's what our covenant keeping God did for us. It hurt him and we're to extend that to our spouse. So, so you're asking John about this whole unconditional commitment thing. Are you saying that, that even though someone at work makes me feel amazing, like, not like my wife, that I should cut it off, Or that even if my spouse won't have sex with me, that I'm supposed to keep my vows, even if they're not making me happy, or uh, they've let themselves go physically, or they've been less than honest about their past? Are you saying that if my spouse divorced me, that I should slow down, not date, see if the Lord over time would move us to a place that would make sense to remarry? Are you saying that I should think long-term about my spouse, even though I don't like them now? Or that even though our marriage feels dead, that I should invest in it? We're in my small group. They're just a little flaky. Are you saying that I still should let my yes be yes friends? I think that is exactly what the Lord would have us do. It's a proper gospel response from his commitment to us. We have a model of commitment. It should motivate us to commit to our spouse first and to our friends. Anything less would be incongruent as believers. So friends, I'm really encouraged about many of the marriages in this body. Uh, I think a lot about John 13, 34 through 35. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples, Um, he said, hey guys, I want you to love each other the way that I've loved you. And when you do this, everyone's gonna know that you're a disciple. You're a follower of me. They should be able to spot you because of the way that you love. And I I will tell you, uh, in this city, and even around the country, people are marveling at the relationships in uh, this church. And as encouraged as I am, I still think, I think there's so much more for us. I, I, literally, I, I, be, I truly believe that Dallas um, could have the lowest divorce rate in the country because of the ways that you guys love each other, the way we encourage other people to keep their commitments and live out a response to the gospel. Part of... Uh, the fun part of this job is I've just seeing a lot of stories. I've got a lot of favorite stories, but uh, I'll tell you one of my favorites. A friend of ours, um, Sarah and Tom uh, were not doing well. And by not doing well, I mean like train wreck. Um, it would take way too long to go into uh, all the carnage that they had caused. Uh, Tom gets a new job and he's gonna move. And he asks Sarah not to come with him. The kid, he doesn't want her and the kids uh, to come. And she's not sure what to do. She's kind of grew up in church, had a little bit of a said faith, but nothing to really fall back onto. And so we're trying to encourage her and challenge her. And Pam was there with her two days before um, the move. And she's like, should I go? And Pam, I think you should. I don't have the answers for the what and the how, but I think, I think you made a covenant to that man and I think you should go. And so we prayed and she went. End of the story is they're doing amazing. I mean, amazing uh, they're leading in their church. They're helping other couples pursue oneness, move past infidelity and all kinds of other uh, carnage. And she came through town and sat at our kitchen table and we asked her, we were asking her, well, just like, tell us, like, how did that happen? Tell us some of the things that you did. Tell us some of the things that you learned along the way. And she would throw, we would sat there and she would just throw out a concept. And I would go, oh, so you read such and such book. She'd go, no. I've never heard of that. And she would write it down. She goes, do you think I should read that? And I go, really? You've never read that. You've never read it. And she would tell us something else. And I I go, oh, you've read this book. No, I've I've never read it. And she would write it down. Do you think I should? Three, four, five times. So so you've been to this conference, Sarah, because I know that's what they talk about. I I have not over and over and over again. And I was like, well, how in the world? did this happen? And she said, John, all all I know is I got around God's people and I opened up my Bible every single day and I read it and I realized how much God had loved me and that it was incongruent for me not to love my husband the same way. And I would just try to read the, the ways that God had loved me and I would try to extend it to my, to my spouse and it was all the stuff. It was all the what and all the how that you would learn in like any 50 marriage books. And she had just figured it out because she had, she had modeled the love of God to her spouse. Friends, it's our best play. Whether you're married or single, whatever relationships you're in, our best play always is to receive and extend uh, gospel love to our neighbors. I hope that's who we become. It's who we are becoming. I hope we continue on this path. Let's pray. Father, um, your kindness, your love, your forgiveness, your initiation, your commitment to us is astounding and definitely undeserved. I pray today we'd be reminded of that gospel love. We would, uh, man, let it take our breath away. And as we go about our, our jobs, our marriages, time with our kids, we would not only remember, but, remember it, but we would extend that to spouse, would you help us become, would you help us become that kind of people that not only receive the gospel, but also live it out. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.